listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. It's good to be back with you. Good to be home. I've been traveling quite a bit and came back to wonderful weather in Florida. This is, this is lovely. And good to see all of you. I have to tell you, so last week I was speaking at a church in Green Bay in Wisconsin. And I always get flavorful responses to what I say. So I think it was two or three weeks ago, I gave a sermon, I came off the stage, and these were the first two responses. The first one was a woman, she was crying, and she said, Everyone needs to hear that word. Everyone, everywhere needs to hear that word. It was, it was such the word of God for me. The very next person said, eh, that was gobbledygook. <laughs> That's a direct quote. Last week, I got something that is, I, I don't know, you can, you can help me make, make sense of it. So I, I gave the sermon, I finished, walked off the stage, and the first comment was, you know, we don't get many theologians around here. And the word theologian had six syllables in it when he, when he said it. I'm not, I, I don't know how that changes the equation, but I've been sitting with that for a while. We don't get many theologians around here. So what I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be back home, right, to be, to be here with you. So in the churches I grew up in, they made this difference between preaching and teaching. And preaching was anointed. Teaching was what you did if you couldn't preach. <laughs> So if you, if you weren't an anointed speaker, but you said things that were worth saying, then that made you a teacher. And a preacher was louder, much, much louder, and used a handheld mic, not a lapel mic like I'm using this morning. Uh, a preacher at some point in the sermon disrobed, at least partially. I did see a, a pastor, um, a, a friend of mine, uh, a few years ago, he did a Palm Sunday sermon that involved him disrobing all the way down, bare naked to the waist, and covering himself with red paint as the blood of Jesus. I don't know if that's preaching or teaching or, or just uh, ex- public exposure. I'm not sure what to call it. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I am going to teach and not preach. So I won't be as loud. I won't be as anointed. But hopefully what I'm saying will, will, make, will make some sense. I, I, I'm introducing a, a new series for us for the season of Lent, serve and be served. And as I was reflecting on, on what, what that means and what the texts for the day might say about that, it struck me that there are, there are ways of living the Christian life that emphasize service that I think actually break down our humanity. There's a way of talking about serving other people that is ultimately servile. It's demeaning. And in that kind of service, you're constantly being taken advantage of or you are manipulating others. I mean, there's a way of serving other people until you're spent, until you're completely exhausted with caring for them. And it, over time, erodes the integrity of who you are. There's another way of serving, which is manipulative, where you serve other people only because it gives you leverage, actually, in their lives. I think without realizing it, many of us were taught to serve God in this way. So in the churches I grew up in, we were, we were told to fast. 
And no one ever said it this explicitly, but the language and, and the logic of, of fasting was about you serve God in that way and it builds up credibility with God so that later you can cash in on it when you have a need, right? So if, if you have, uh, have something looming, something important looming, and you really want God to be there for you, then fast now, accumulate all the goodwill you can accumulate, and then when it's time, come before God and say, listen, I just fasted for 40 days, did the Daniel fast for 40 days. Could you answer this prayer? But of course, that, that kind of service is at its heart manipulative, right? It, it's, it's essentially trying to leverage God by doing things for God. And of course, we all have people in our lives who do that with us. They do nice things for us, but while they're doing those nice things, you can essentially hear the ulterior motives whispering, this will come back to get you, this will come back to get you, this will come back to get you, right? Or is that only me? <laughs> right? That, there's something about, the, there are those, those times in your life, those people in your life, when what they're doing is nice, but you can sense underneath it, there is something not nice taking place. And other people sense that from you. Sometimes. Maybe. Maybe not. But there is a way of serving that actually isn't love. That isn't loving. There's a way of giving your life that isn't like Christ at all, but is anti-Christ. It appears to be like Christ, but its heart is far from the heart of Christ. So I think if we're going to talk about Lent and we're going to talk about serving and being served, we have to insist right up front. We want to serve from the Spirit of God, in the Spirit of God. We want to serve lovingly, serve in ways that are life-giving, serve in ways that are not carried along by ulterior motives, not serving to manipulate, but genuinely serving as a way of caring for others. And I think that that ultimately is rooted in Jesus as the revelation of God a God who has no need and cares for us from that place of needlessness, that place of absolute abundant love for us. God does not create because he needs us. Right? So again, appealing to my own experience, I, I was taught in so many words that God created us because he needed us to love him genuinely. But of course, that defeats itself. If God, the all-powerful one, has to create us as radically dependent upon him as we would be because he brought us into being in order for us to authentically love him, there's, there's no way for that to hold together. Either God creates us out of need and therefore we are at the mercy of a God who is not like us at all and yet needs us to love him as if he were our equal. And, and there's no way to do that. Or, as Christian faith has always taught, God creates not from need, but out of sheer abundant love. Not because he needs anything from us, not our obedience, not our love, not our devotion. He needs nothing from us. And he creates us anyway, because he creates, again, not from need, but from sheer abundance. And cares for us in that abundance. And then we are taken up by that abundance, and we are able to live from that for others. So... When we look to the text today, we're going to start in Romans. I want you to bear that in mind. The God who carries us along is a God who needs nothing from us. We can add nothing to his life. In fact, every week we enact this at this table. We come to the table and we offer to God our gifts of bread and wine. Not, not wheat and not grapes, but bread and wine. What we have made, 
with what nature has given us. Nature gives us wheat, we make bread, and then we bring it to God and offer it in thanksgiving. Nature gives us grapes, and we make wine, and we bring it to God and offer it to him with thanksgiving. But because God has no need, we can't give anything to God that doesn't turn into a gift from God to us. So today when we come to this table and we offer our thanksgiving and we offer these gifts of bread and wine, the Spirit makes them the body and blood of Christ for us and we feast on Him. So that our attempt to give a gift to Him just recurs on us as a gift from Him to us. And that's true of all things because God has no need. He is sheer abundant grace and generosity and hospitality and care. And once that life takes root in you, that's who you and I become. We live from that place. And so our service then does not wear us out, does not exhaust us, because we're not serving from our own nature, but from his nature rooted in us. And it is not manipulative because it has no other motive other than simple care for people. There's no agenda. It's not as if we do good deeds in order to hook people with something else. We do good because... People deserve to be cared for. And the life of God in us moves us to that end. So Romans 5. Like I said, this is not anointed preaching. This is just teaching. <laughs> Romans 5. Verse 15. Just, just a couple of verses. But I want to take a few minutes and go over it a few times until it starts to, to show itself to us. Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So we've got a contrast at work here. On the one hand, you have what Paul calls the free gift. Of course, all gifts are free, but Paul wants to underscore that this gift is, is truly free. There are no strings attached. There are no strings attached. Again, I think this is hard for many of us who've been raised in churches that do, again, without saying, so, without saying it in so many words, who do teach us that God has a need. If God has a need, then all of his gifts come with strings attached. And those strings are meant to bind us up. But Paul's insistence is that the gift is free. It's free and freeing. There, there is no response needed or expected. The gift is free. And that is over against the trespass. The, the breaking of the law of God. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So again, kind of penetrating into this distinction between the trespass and the free gift. He says, the trespass, Adam's sin brings about destruction for many. It brings about condemnation for many. But that is nothing compared to what the free gift of the grace of God in Christ has brought about. That the grace of God in Christ, the free gift that is Jesus, is overwhelmingly better than the trespass of the first man. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass 
brought condemnation. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. There is so much happening in that, in that one half sentence. Let's stop and, and just think about it for a moment. You have the one man's trespass. He's, he's obviously talking about the story of Adam and Eve, the story of taking the fruit, the Genesis 2 story, which is the Old Testament reading for today. He says, through one man's sin, condemnation came to many. And judgment brought about, he says, this condemnation. So one man's trespass brings about the judgment, which brings about the condemnation of the many. So trespass, judgment, condemnation. Right? If I had a whiteboard, I would scrawl it up there in, in what looked like those words, more or less, but would probably be misspelled. Right? So when you picture it, picture it rightly, spelled correctly. So trespass, judgment, condemnation. And he says, but that's nothing, again, that is nothing compared to what happens after many trespasses. So again, trespass, judgment, condemnation, Many trespasses. Now this is something that it is, it's incredibly difficult for those of us who've been churchified, who've, who've been given a kind of Christianity that's rooted in servile, manipulative care rather than the love of God. It's virtually impossible for us to understand this, but the judgment of God does not bring about transformation, much less our judgment. I'm going to say that again. The judgment of God does not bring about transformation, much less does our judgment. So Paul says this is the story. Trespass, judgment, condemnation, many trespasses. And this is exemplified over and over and over again in Scripture. But maybe my favorite example of this is the story of Aaron and Moses being challenged by the elders of Israel. Their, their authority is challenged. And we don't have time to get into all the detail, but essentially the story is after they've left Egypt and come through the wilderness, the Israel begins to challenge God and challenge Moses and challenge Aaron's authority. And it all ultimately climaxes in, in a showdown between a man named Korah and the elders of Israel against Moses. And Moses says... We'll let God decide between us. And when Moses says this, the earth opens up and swallows Korah and those who are with him. And those who manage to run away from the opening earth are struck down by lightning bolts from the temple, from the tabernacle. Fire shoots out from the tabernacle and strikes them dead. Pretty dramatic. God siding with Moses. There have been times I've wanted God to do that. So far, he hasn't done it. Not to me, to other people. <laughs> the earth opens up, lightning strikes from the temple. But the text says all of Israel that night fled to their tents in fear. Makes sense. Yes, that's what I would have done. And here's what's striking, right? This, this is clearly a moment where Moses has been challenged. God sides with Moses and God's judgment against Israel's rebellion is Final. The earth opens up and swallows them, strikes the ones who escape dead. And the next morning, the text says, all of Israel rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Now, the point of that story, and I could give you lots of other examples, 
And I might if I was preaching, but since I'm teaching, I won't. <laughs> the, the point of that story is that even God's judgment doesn't bring about deliverance from sin. It actually only hardens the heart. It produces more sinfulness. And this is why Paul says the story is trespass, judgment, condemnation, many trespasses. That when the law comes, and Paul says this over and over and over again, read it this afternoon in Romans, Galatians, everywhere for Paul, the law brings about the multiplication of sin. That the, the law comes in and instead of the law freeing us from sin, it causes sin to abound. Now again, many of us have been raised, thankfully not all of us, but many of us, at least a few of us, have been raised in Christianity that is attempting to use judgment to control sin. And the dead giveaway, of course, is trying to make you feel guilty for your sin. And you should feel guilty, but that's beside the point trying to use your guilt to make you stop sinning. But in fact, that only works to create more sin. If you meet trespass with judgment, it produces condemnation, and out of condemnation comes more sin, not less. Right? This is why when Jesus, they bring the woman who's caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, and they're going to stone her, and Jesus says, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. You remember the story. If they had killed her, it would not have ended the sin. It would have only have multiplied sin. What Jesus is able to do by saving her is actually kill the sin. Go and sin no more. And by confronting the sin in the lives of all those around her who were going to kill her, he again, for, at least for the moment, introduces the possibility that sin would be overcome. But killing her would only have underscored that judgment cannot bring about transformation. Not even God's judgment does, much less our judgment. And so Paul says, God has acted in Jesus Christ in an entirely new way. So if it is, again, the story, trespass, judgment, condemnation, many trespasses, he says what follows the many trespasses is the free gift of Jesus Christ. That the way God answers the many trespasses is not by greater judgment. You can see how that would just keep escalating. Sin, judgment, condemnation, more sin, more judgment, more condemnation, more sin, more judgment. It just continues to escalate. Violence meeting violence meeting violence. Our violence against God, God's violence against us. It just escalates and escalates and escalates. And yet what happens, Paul says, is in Jesus Christ, God acts by overwhelming us with a gift. A gift of his own life that is entirely unwarranted. We do no way deserve it. We are guilty. We are in the wrong. And it's a, not only entirely unwarranted, it's entirely unasked for. We didn't even know to ask for it. And yet God, while, in, in the language of Romans, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul makes a point to say... Some would dare to die for those who were trustworthy and worthy of devotion. But only God would die for those who are not worthy and not trustworthy. But that is precisely the gospel. That God met our many trespasses 
with a free gift. A free gift that is not warranted, is not even wanted. And yet when it's received, it frees us from sin. It, it liberates us from the condemnation that is at the root of our trespasses. I want you to think about it like this for just a moment. And, and, and all of this is introduction, but I'll move much more quickly once we get past the introduction. <laughs> I sometimes get papers from students, you know, that have a sentence or two as introduction and the body of the paper and no conclusion. This, this teaching, I almost said sermon, but it's not a sermon because I'm not preaching. This teaching is all introduction and just like two or three sentences at the end. So Paul's, Paul's teaching here is that the, the condemnation that's brought about through the judgment of God is the root of our, our true sin and the, the ground in which the root grows. And then God delivers us from that by a free gift that, again, is, is entirely out of keeping with what we deserve and that that actually frees us. So I want you to, to think of it like this. Imagine someone you love is kidnapped. And you get a word from the ransomers that they want a million dollars in $5 bills. They're, they're strange ransomers. I don't know why. But $5 bills. There is a way of thinking about ransom, thinking about what Christ has done for us, by thinking about it in those terms, that, that the devil took us captive and told God, I won't give them back if you don't pay me my million dollars in $5 bills. And on the cross... Jesus shells it out. Jesus gives the devil what the devil demands so we can go free. Right? And again, I doubt anyone uses that analogy, but more or less, we, we suggest that often to people, that, that, that in the cross, what is being brought about is the payment is being made for the wrongs that we did, either being made to God the Father or being made to the devil. The payment has to be made. A wrong was done, it has to be righted. But that's not at all what's happening in the cross. It's not that a wrong has happened and God is going to right the wrong by paying someone back, either Jesus paying the Father or the Father paying the devil. It's more like this. You find out that someone you love has been kidnapped. The ransomers demand a million dollars. And so you devise a scheme, and you are a mastermind. You devise a scheme in which you give them the $5 bills but only after behind the scenes destroying the U.S. economy entirely so that the dollar means nothing. <laughs> now, it's, it's a wonderful scheme. Tell us about it sometime. But I, I can't tell you because I'm not a mastermind. I don't know how you would do that. But look, you would do that. And when you accomplish that, you give them the, the, the currency they ask for. You give them the $5 bills. But it doesn't mean anything because the whole economy has changed. What's happening in Jesus Christ is not Jesus paying back the devil or Jesus paying back the Father so we can go free. It's God destroying the economy so that we are liberated not only from our oppressors but from the very possibility of being oppressed. That's what's happening in Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul insists the gift is not like the trespass, and what comes about through the gift is not like what comes about through the trespass. What sin has done, grace has utterly overwhelmed. As he'll say later in this same chapter, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Right? With me so far? Yeah. 
So, at the heart of this is the truth that God serves us. And that only because God serves us can we serve him or serve others. But this is really hard for some of us who have religion soaked down into our bones. It's really hard for some of us to stomach that God serves us. But this happens in Jesus Christ without question again and again. It it culminates, for instance, in the moment with Peter just before Jesus dies where Jesus washes their feet. And what does Peter say? No, you can't wash my feet. I must wash your feet. Because Peter cannot imagine a scenario in which he's not serving Jesus. It's it's at this same time that Peter says, when Jesus says, you're going to deny me, Peter says, I'll never deny you. No matter what all these other folks do, I won't deny you. But there is intimately this connection between the refusal to let God serve you and overconfidence in your own faithfulness. The very fact that Peter thinks he would never deny Christ, even though, of course, he's the first to do it, is a revelation that he cannot yet see that Jesus wants to serve him. Jesus is trying to care for him. Because at the heart of this relationship with God is not God needing us, and so we do things for God, but it's God who doesn't need us, giving himself to us. Jesus, in in the Gospel of Matthew, there are two sayings of Jesus, one at the beginning, one at the end of the Gospel. And if you look at the back wall, you see, I still have nine minutes and 11 seconds. I have this entire time had nine minutes and 11 seconds left. So this is wonderful. I'll get everything said this way. (laughs) Exactly. I, I, I am rushing, right? We're almost to the end of the introduction. And then just a few sentences. So you... You get this, this moment at the very beginning of the gospel in, in, in the temptation narrative where Jesus says to the devil, serve God only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But at the end of the gospel, we get a revelation from Jesus that he is the one who serves. This is one of his last teachings before he's betrayed. I am among you as one who serves. So that if you see the ark in Matthew, it starts with the claim, you must worship God. You must serve him only. But it ends with the claim that you can serve him because he first serves you. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. Why do we worship God? Because he first worships us. In this sense, he brings worth to us. He makes us who we are. He loves us into being. And then loves the being that we are. We can serve him because he serves us. And if we ever get that out of place, we, like Peter, will think our faithfulness is something that isn't. And we will not only think that about ourselves, but we will think of others that they are unfaithful. I mean, Peter's not just saying, I will never deny you. But he suspects that everybody else will. Because that's the way that self-righteousness works. You overestimate yourself and you underestimate everyone else. Jesus says, you will deny me. But at the heart of Matthew is a very short story, but a wonderful one. The story of Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew 8, 14. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. 
He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to serve him. This is a hilarious story for lots of reasons. One, he gets to Peter's house, and Jesus sees that the mother-in-law is sick. I love this because Peter hasn't told him. Peter's not worried about his mother-in-law at all. He doesn't say to Jesus, hey, we're about to go home, and mom is sick. Can you heal her? Peter's like, let's just go to the house, and doesn't even think about the fact that his mother-in-law is dying with a fever. Jesus just happens to see her. That's funny. I don't know why you're not laughing. That's funny. And I'm not going to make any mother-in-law jokes, but this is, this is funny, right? Peter doesn't say anything about his mother-in-law being sick. Jesus just happens to see her. And then what's even funnier than that is as soon as Jesus heals her, what does she do? She gets up and starts serving him. That doesn't seem quite right. I mean, the woman has been in bed with a fever. I mean, is it really the right thing for her to do to bounce out of bed and start serving everybody? Maybe we should give her a break. I can see all of you are from patriarchal households. That makes sense to you. <laughs> but but here's, here's, I think, the truth at the heart of it. That it's not that Jesus heals her so she can get right back to the exhausting work of being the mom who cares for everyone. It's that the touch of Jesus brings into her the same grace that is in him. And the grace that is in him is the grace of abundant generosity. The grace that is in him, the life that is in him, is the life of sheer gift. And when that life is shared with her, she bolts from the bed and starts serving, not in some servile way, not because that's what's expected of mom, you serve the people who are in the house. Not because that's what she must do, but because the life of God is in her. And that's what she must do. Not because to do otherwise is to be condemned, but because it is not possible to do otherwise. When the love of God is in you, you can't not love as God loves. This is why the language of John is, if you say you love God, but you don't love your neighbor who's in need, you're a liar. Because if the love of God were in you, you couldn't help but love the people who are around you. So when the life of Jesus comes into Peter's mother-in-law, she can't help but serve, but not serve in the way she had always served, not serve out of her expectations of herself that had been imposed upon her by her society, but out of the love of God that is rooted in her life now. And so, conclusion concluded. Here's the sermon. Not sermon, lesson. Really, really short. You can't serve others until you realize that God is always first serving you and delights in serving you. And that your service of others can be nothing but your participation in God's serving of them. In, in Matthew 4 today, we get the story of the temptations of Jesus. And I think he perfectly models for us, reveals to us in his life, what genuine care for others is like. At the end of the passage in Romans 5 that we were just reading, we read that because of grace, those who share in this free gift will have dominion in this life. Those who share in this grace will have dominion in this life through Jesus Christ. But it turns out that the dominion God gives is the dominion Jesus lives. And the dominion he lives is the dominion of serving everyone he meets and never demanding that he be served. That true dominion, true authority is service. Service without manipulation, 
Service without coercion. Service that arises not from your own nature, but from the nature of God that's rooted in you. So the three temptations in Matthew 4 are first, to turn the stones into bread. Then, to throw himself down from the temple and demonstrate to everyone that he is, in fact, God. And lastly, to bow his knee to Satan so that all the kingdoms of the world can be his. In, in this overcoming of the temptations, Jesus reveals to us the nature of the grace that is in us and shows us what it will look like when we serve others from that place rather than from our own nature. First, when the love of God is in you, you serve others by letting stones be stones even when you need bread. I wish I had time this morning. Look, I have nine minutes and 11 seconds. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wish I had time to talk about this because there's so much happening in the Gospel of Matthew about stones. The, John the Baptist says Jesus could, could take these stones and raise them up into children of Abraham. But in, in the wilderness, Jesus refuses to turn stones into bread and in that way reveals that when God serves us, he serves us by letting stones be stones. He doesn't violently transform us. And when we are serving others with the love of God, we can let them be who they are. We can let circumstances be what they are, and we don't have to force them into becoming something. You will meet stones, people who have turned to stone. And to love them like God loves them is to let them be stones, even if you need bread. Because if it's any other way, if you live any other way, you will never be able to care for people except in the ways in which they can return that care. And that is not the love of God because God has no need. He never loves us, so we will love him in return. And if we love others and serve others well, we do not serve them so that they will respond. We love and serve them whether they respond or not. We let stones be stones. We don't turn stones into bread. We don't try to make people into what we need them to be. We let them be who they are. Trusting that God can turn stones to flesh when the time is right, but I don't do that. God can transform people's lives. That's not my job. Ministry is not transforming people. Ministry is caring for people until they are opened up to the transformation of God. We don't change people. That's violence. That's coercion. That's destruction. Let people be who they are. Let people, let, and let, let people let you be who you are. You don't try to become bread if you're a stone. If you are in a moment where you're a stone, be a stone. Who knows what God might do with a stone? I mean, this, I think, is, is just as important for you to understand about yourself as it is for you to understand about other people. I said this would be short. i got to rush. Second thing is, he says, throw yourself down. Because it's written that God won't allow you to hurt yourself. And if you throw yourself down from this great height of the temple, everyone will see who you are. But to love others rightly, to serve others the way that God serves us, is never to act in a way that violates yourself in order to make a point. You don't destroy yourself by loving others. That's not love. You can lay your life down, you can live sacrificially, but self, 
Sacrifice is not the same thing as self-destruction. Self-sacrifice arises from a love of God that carries you along. Self-destruction is when you try to be something you're not, or you try to force other people to be aware of who you are. You try to bend everyone's perspective so that they can see who you really are. But that's not love. I mean, one of the things that astonishes me about Jesus is how comfortable he was with people not knowing who he was. And think about this. When he started his ministry, when he comes down to the river and John baptizes him and he steps out of the river into his ministry in the power of the Spirit, not a single person in his life has any idea who he is. Think about that. I think if I were Jesus, I would have done enough stuff, said enough things, done enough stuff over the course of the first 30 years of my life that people would see, hey, yeah, we were thinking something was up with this guy. But Jesus didn't do anything that made him stand out to people. I mean, he, was, he went through the teenage years, which are the worst years. It, it, it's, it's, it's the reason it's hard for me sometimes to believe that God exists is that the teenage years exist. <laughs> that cannot have been the best plan. But... But what's happening in that moment, what's happening in that moment is that God is happy not to be known. And so much of what we do in destroying other people is from the fear that we won't be seen for who we are. And in moments of desperation, we violently force other people to see who we really are. But the love of God doesn't have to be seen. And when you're carried along by it, you can serve others even if they don't know who you are. And finally, and lastly, we have to have patience not only with others and not only with ourselves, we have to have patience with God. Satan says, bow the knee and I'll give you these kingdoms. And Jesus' answer is, God will give me the kingdoms when the time is right. You have to have patience with God because God's timing isn't yours. And he is willing to let things play out much more slowly than I'm willing to let them play out. But part of serving people well is serving people well even when it seems like God is not with you in the service. Even when it seems like God is not bringing about what he's promised to bring about. Trusting him anyway. And caring for people and leaving room, leaving time for God to do what he's going to do on his own. And if we are moved by the Spirit of God, that's what will mark our service for others. Patience with them. Let stones be stones. Patience with ourselves. We don't throw ourselves down to prove a point. And patience with God. However long it takes, he will come through. All right, bow your heads. God, thank you for this day. Help us, God, to serve from your nature that has taken root in us and not to serve from our own, not to serve from flesh, but from spirit. As we move through this Lenten season, God, reveal to us more and more that it is the free gift of grace that is at the heart of our lives. It's that free gift that frees us up to live without manipulation or coercion or fear, to simply care. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. 
If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.